How does Jesus envision his followers being received by the world? How does Jesus, our king, especially in this message of the Sermon on the Mount, when he thinks of us who are in his kingdom and yet still living in the world, how does he say the world will respond to us? And when we hear that question, I bet for most of us in this room, we fall on one side or the other in our answer. Because in the Bible, there's clearly two broad answers to that question. Two broad answers. And they're actually both listed back to back by Jesus here in Matthew 5. Because quickly first, just skim your eyes down at verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12, which we covered last time we were here in Matthew 5. Because there, our king is clear that often... In this world, even when we're genuinely trying to follow him and righteousness, what will happen? Well, in basic, often those in the world won't like it. And that makes sense. And we see that in our world in both bigger and smaller ways. But then, and almost paradoxically in a way, but just as true, Jesus also sees the world responding to his people in what we just heard read in the scripture reading. And that's how Jesus also envisions the world seeing his followers as unique and as having characteristics and works that are good and even attractive in a way. And and we say that that's almost a paradox because this means that from Jesus, that he knows that the same world which doesn't like God or doesn't like him, and remember, that is all of us naturally, and so he knows that's true, and yet that same world does, of course, love in a way certain things that originate in God, such as love or peace or justice or beauty or goodness. And that same world, therefore, does love it when Jesus' followers bring those things into the world. And so so those are the two main ways Jesus envisions the world receiving his people. And quickly for us, we need to keep in mind both of those as Christians, both of those. Because for some of us here, we may think that the world only receives Christians negatively. And that's all there is to it. But the truth is, that is just not true, nor has that ever been true. But then also, for for others of us, we need to know that, as Jesus did warn in the Beatitudes, we may do all the right things and be as loving as we can, and yet people still might not like us because of Jesus. And now much more could be said, of course, on all of that, but we begin that way this morning because that's then essentially where we all are here in Matthew 5. In basic, Jesus just told us that we will be persecuted for his sake. And yet we still are salt and light in this world. And Jesus says people will even see that and glorify God because of it. And so anyways, that's where we are. But that then brings us to our outline for how we'll go more deeply through what Jesus says here. And so in terms of what Jesus is saying in this paragraph, it's pretty straightforward. Because basically Jesus' call is for his people who are in his kingdom to know that they're salt and light in this world. And therefore, to live accordingly. Right? It's that, it's that simple. But for us, in order to break that down even further, we'll go through everything Jesus says here this morning in, in three sections. Three sections. With the first two being a bit quicker, all setting us up for our last section. And so, three sections. And as for what they are, simply first, we'll look at Jesus' analogy of us being the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. And then second, we'll then look at Jesus' analogy of us being the light of the world. And again, for those two sections, we'll go a bit quicker because in some ways they're a little more obvious. 
But then, third and finally for us this morning, that'll all lead us to ask, but how? But how? Meaning we've probably heard that Jesus calls us salt and Jesus calls us light, but what does that really mean and and how do you and I live like that? And so that'll be our third section. So in summary, three sections. First, we are the salt of the earth. Second, we are the light of the world. But then third, how do we actually live like it? But all it said, church, let's then dive in and begin our first section together. And here, again, we're looking at how our Savior uses this analogy of salt for us, his people. And for this, we're just going to be in verse 13. And so let's start by reading it, and then we'll talk about it together. So look down at your Bibles, Matthew 5, 13. The Bible says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So to begin on that, perhaps the most significant thing that we can sometimes overlook is that Jesus technically doesn't call us to be salt here. Although I do think we can talk like that. But actually here, Jesus is just very clearly declaring to us, his people, you are the salt of the earth. Meaning as those saved and in Jesus' kingdom living on this earth, this is who we are. And that is similar to the Beatitudes, right? And we need to remember that because so often we make Christianity about what we should do or what we want to be like. And and that's good because we do want to follow Jesus more. But here, just like in the Beatitudes, Jesus actually isn't commanding us yet. Instead, he's just clearly saying, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. And so that's who we are, but what then does Jesus mean by that? Well, first, concerning that of the earth phrase, you can hear how intentionally big and general that is. And so this isn't a small thing, but this is who Jesus' followers, who Christians are toward the whole earth. And what are we? Well, we're like salt. And now concerning salt, like in our day and age, salt back then was used for many things, but in basic, we can summarize salt's main uses back then to two main uses, two main uses. First, salt back then was used to make things taste better. And of course, as we all know, it still does that today. And on that one, we know that Jesus has that in mind because he's about to talk to us about how salt can lose its taste. And so salt make things, makes things taste better. But then also second, and perhaps more significant back then, salt was used a lot to keep things from decaying. Salt was used for preservation, as it still can be used that way today. And, and knowing that then, this means that when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, his readers originally would have had, heard him in those two ways, and we should hear him too. Number one, Jesus is saying here, we make things taste better. And then number two, Jesus is saying we help preserve. And now how and what does that look like? Remember, we're going to talk about that more in our third section. But that's just what Jesus is saying about us here so far who are in his kingdom. But as you heard, that's not all he says here. Because interestingly, Jesus does say that that is who we are. But then also in the same verse, he implies that yet, church, being salt, we can become salt that isn't really doing what we're supposed to do. Because now look down again at verse 13. Jesus says, we are salt. And then he adds this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And again, that probably would have made more sense to people back then than it might to us today. Because when we hear this, if you're thinking critically, we may know that technically, salt in itself can't lose its saltiness. (laughs) Salt, by definition, is always salty. And yet, we in this room only think that because we have such processing now that we can arrive at pretty pure sodium chloride. But back then, just so you know, salt was usually derived from salt marshes. And so what they called salt was less processed, of course, and therefore it could have had a lot of impurities in it. And that means that some salt back then wasn't as salty. And that type of salt was used mainly on paths or rooftops, and people would just step on it. And so for us, hearing hearing that, then we can see Jesus' point. Because again, Jesus' point is clear. You are salt. We are salt. That is who we are in Jesus' kingdom. And yet again, even salt can be of such a character that it loses its taste. Its saltiness can be of little worth. And then it's, quote, no longer good for anything. Except basically for the lowest uses and to be stepped on. Which, and finally on this verse, which should make us feel how that is a big and bold statement. Because in this one verse then from Jesus, he shows us that salt, that we brothers and sisters in his kingdom, we can be such a positive thing for people and for our world. Or salt and we in Jesus' kingdom can basically be like worthless and trampled on towards the world, which is a bold warning. And so that's our first section about being the salt of the earth. And again, we can talk more about how and what, but we'll save that for our third section. But for now, I just hope we're all tracking with Jesus' goal here. Because to be clear, his goal so far is to make us realize first as an encouragement that in his kingdom, we are so unique. We are made special by him. And we are amazingly, as those in Jesus' kingdom, I hope you know it, we are those who make the world taste better and keep the world from decaying so much. And yet, again, coupled with that encouragement is a warning that we could be salt and yet personally not really be doing what we're supposed to be doing. So that's our first section. Which now leads us to move on to our second, where we'll look at Jesus' analogy of us being light. Light. And this section here, as you'll see, will take the same structure as that about salt, with first a declaration about who we are, and then second, a subtle warning. And so let's take those one at a time. Declaration, then warning. And the declaration will just start in verse 14. So look there now. Jesus used the analogy of salt, and then he transitions right away and continues in verse 14 to this analogy. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So stop there for now. And like with salt, you can see here, Jesus is clear. We are the light of the world. And again, like of the earth, that phrase of the world is really broad and intentionally so. Because Jesus is saying, in this whole dark world, now full of sin and brokenness, where's the light? My people, you are the light of the world. And quickly, two things on that. Two things. First, think about it. That does give us a huge purpose and place in this world. And when you think about it, this statement about us is so big that we may even cringe at it because we know that this world and Christianity ultimately isn't about us. 
It's about, it's about Jesus, and, and we don't want to be so focused on. And, and cringing at this because of that is a good, humble response. And yet, it is Jesus himself who says to us, his people, you are the light of the world. And so we should hear that as a huge statement showing us who we are and that how we live does matter. It really does. But then also, and second on this, that statement then starts to make more sense for us once we remember that it was Jesus himself who elsewhere calls himself this phrase as well, and even more ultimately so. And he does so in the Gospel of John very famously where he stands up, as you might know, during the Feast of Dedication, which to us now is known as Hanukkah, where they're celebrating with lights. And in that setting, with lights all surrounding him, Jesus stood up and he says this, quote, I am the light of the world. And then connecting it to us here, then right away in that same paragraph in John 8, Jesus adds this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's then how this works. We are the light of the world genuinely, importantly. But how and why? Well, because we are in Jesus, the ultimate light. And because we carry the gospel message of Jesus, who is the light. Which, that said, on the one hand, again, does make us realize that our living really does matter. We're here for the reason, we're for a reason. We are the light of the world. <laughs> but then also, it should make us realize that ultimately, it still isn't about us. Our, our light is only a reflected light. Right? We shine not our own awesomeness and light, but we shine Jesus. And so that's the declaration from Jesus about you are the light of the world. But then also in this verse, as you can see, and quickly before we move on, Jesus then also, in a way, gives a smaller analogy with us being a city on a hill. And again, this is a declaration because notice, he doesn't say a city on a hill not shouldn't be hidden, but he says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And the reason this actually fits really well with the light analogy is because back then, the reason a city, if it was on a hill, couldn't be hidden is because it would have lights in it that people could see from far away. And so again, even there, Jesus is making the same analogy that we are light. But anyway, so that's the declaration here. We are the light of the world in Jesus. And in a sense, we as the church cannot be hidden. And I hope you know that. And I hope you're encouraged by that. Because if you're here wondering if your life matters, it does. If you are in Christ so much, you are the light of the world. And yet again, like with the analogy of salt, Jesus doesn't stop there. Because then, in the same analogy of light, he does again give us a subtle warning about it. And so now look at verse 15. We'll read verse 14 again for context, but verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And so here, as, as you can see, like with salt... Jesus is essentially warning us that we are the light, that's true, and yet we should know that the light can live in such a way where it covers or, or avoids its true purpose. And on this, it's important to see that Jesus is being really intentional here in talking the way he does. He's being really intentional because notice, it's fascinating. Jesus could have said something to us like, nor do people light a lamp and then blow it out when they need light. And if he said that, 
then that would imply that we are the light, but then you might think, well, then I could do something that would make me no longer the light, if that makes sense. But notice, Jesus actually doesn't say that. Instead, intentionally, in his warning here, the light is always still the light. But what can go wrong is that the light, which is meant to shine and give light to all who are in the house, it can get put under a basket. It doesn't stop being the light. It just stops doing what it's supposed to do. And briefly, remember, this was actually the same with the salt analogy as well. Because Jesus there didn't say, but if the salt becomes dirt, no, he simply warns warns us that salt can start losing its taste. And so that's these analogies of salt and light. And Jesus' point is clear. We are those things, church. We are salt. We are the light of the world. We are a city that cannot be hidden. And yet, in both of those, there's a warning that we can live in such a way, even being those things where we diminish that. We essentially put our light under a basket where we don't shine the way we should. And so that's our second section about light. And in many ways, again, I know that's a little more obvious, but I hope we're still just all tracking with Jesus' goal because he's now used two analogies to make it clear who we are and he's used two warnings to show us that we can lose our effectiveness and diminish in a way who we are. So that's the first two sections, which finally now all sets the stage for our biggest and third section where we're now asking, okay, so we are salt, we are light, and we're called to live like that. But how? How? And and I want to spend the longest on this section because I do think that we can know that we're salt, that we're light, but then we can fill in the how question or the what that looks like question with our own answers in our own ways, rather than really thinking about what did Jesus mean. And so I think it will be really good for us to dig into verse 16 here in the surrounding context to find what did Jesus have in mind when he says all this? And especially when he says what he's about to say in verse 16. And how does that apply to you and me? And so now for this, first, just look at your Bible in verse 16. Verse 16. Because Jesus now ends his short talk on salt and light like this. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So begin on this verse first. Let's just see what Jesus is saying here in general. In general, because in general, it's clear to begin that what makes actually this sentence here unique is that this now technically is a command. A command, an imperative, a command from Jesus that let your light shine is a command. Which quickly, remember, the one and only set of commands in all the Beatitudes from Jesus was in verse 12 where Jesus commanded, if you remember, quote, rejoice and be glad. And now here, the second time a command shows up in this whole Sermon on the Mount, it's let your light shine. (laughs) And and I I bring that up because if you are here and you just tend to think of Jesus or following Jesus or Christianity as this duty-focused, dull thing, I just hope you see from that that that's not Jesus. (laughs) Because Jesus really has only commanded two things in this whole Sermon on the Mount so far. And he wants us to rejoice and be glad and he wants us to shine. (laughs) But anyway, so that's the command here. And then where is our light to shine? Well, before others. And why? Well, so that they may see our good works. And then finally, what's the goal? 
Well, for others to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Meaning, connecting it from before, we are to live in this salt and light way before others in our actions which people see and in that they're to see not how great we are, but how great our God and Father in heaven is. So that's the overall structure of this verse. That's the command from Jesus. Which again, does lead us though to ask, but how? How? And remember, we're not asking here, how can I be salt? Or how can I be light? We are salt. We are light if we trust in Jesus. Instead, the question is, how do I do this, Jesus? How can I be salty as I should be? How can I not place my light under the basket but let it shine? And of course, in the Bible as a whole, there's many answers that we could give to that. But here in Matthew from Jesus, now just notice with me three things about this verse in the surrounding context that I think start to show us how. Three things on how we do this. And the first is now just zooming in on that phrase, good works, that Jesus uses. You see that there, good works. Because that's clearly a big part in answering how, since that's what people will see, right? And so the question is, what are those? What is Jesus talking about? And I think this is important for us to dwell on, because the truth is, I think perhaps for most of us, when we hear good works, we probably immediately think of something. And for many of us, we might immediately assume that Jesus is talking mainly or only about more so physical good deeds, right? And in fact, some translations even translate that word works, deeds, which I personally think is a little unhelpful. But even that word works can be confusing too. Because yes, it is true that certainly when Jesus or the Bible talks about good works, it does, of course, include the possibility of physical good deeds. Meaning Jesus' phrase here does include physical actions that we can do in kindness for others, right? Like we often call them acts of kindness. And yet also, in the original language, we all need to know that this word works is so much more broad than that. So much more broad. Because in essence, this comes from one of the most basic verbs in Greek. And in fact, it's most similar to our word do. And it's just that word do made into a noun. It's the verb do, a basic verb made into a noun. And therefore, I'd argue that by far the best translation, although awkward, would be good doings. And that matters because that means concerning how we live as the salt and the light that we are, and especially as how we let our light shine here, Jesus isn't primarily then thinking of something specific, like only acts of kindness as we call them, even though those are great. Instead, this word works is intentionally broad. It's just talking about all of our doings in general. And in fact, that phrase being really general is actually then further extended in that word good as well. Because again, if we say good deeds... Many of us almost immediately just think of acts of kindness. But just like the word works, the word good here is very general, just like it is in English. And it can be used in the Bible to be translated as good or attractive or useful or beautiful. It's a very broad word. And therefore, all that said, I know that maybe was a lot, but then I do think then that reading this phrase, good works like that, does give us a lot more insight into what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) And how you and I should respond. 
Because what are our good works then that we should do to shine? Well, in summary, so far, we've seen that it's basically, church, anything that we generally do in our lives that's good or beautiful or right. It's not just acts of kindness, although those are great, but it's just living in Jesus' world as his followers and doing and acting in numerous good and beautiful ways. That's how we live as tasteful salt and the light that we are. And so that's the first insight into how we live in this, as salt and light. But then second, that then leads us to ask, but what are some examples of some good and beautiful doings? Or to say it another way, okay, so this is broad, we get that, but does Jesus, who uses this phrase and, and calls us to this, does he anywhere give us a hint at what he might mean by good doings? And the answer to that, I think, is, is yes. Yes. And, and where or, or what? Well, think about it. Jesus is saying this about showing forth our good doings in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> right after the Beatitudes and right before he goes and teaches how we should live for three whole chapters. And therefore, if you and I, trying to follow Jesus, were to try to think about what Jesus here means when he says that we're shining forth our good doings, what should we think of? Well, in basic, we should probably think of what Jesus says here and what's surrounding this paragraph. Meaning we should think of good works being what Jesus taught us right before this in the Beatitudes. And we should think of good works being what Jesus is going to talk about after this in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Obeying those things is clearly an example of living and showing forth good and beautiful doings. And again, I do think this is quite important for us in this room to understand because, again, when we hear this idea of good works shining forth before others, we might immediately think of big, outward, or obvious things. We, again, may think of acts of kindness, or we may think Jesus is here talking only about more noticeable charity, or honestly, in our more contentious and media-focused world we all live in, often many Christians just hear this idea of shining forth before others, and they immediately think that it must be something in the public realm, and particularly with the big issues of our day. And yet, notice, those overall are not the things that Jesus primarily talks about before this in the Beatitudes, nor after this in the whole Sermon on the Mount in general. It's fascinating. And now, that does not mean that the Spirit of God doesn't lead us to do many acts of kindness. He does. Or that doesn't mean that the Spirit won't lead some of us to really engage in the larger culture in bigger ways. Because sometimes Christians are called to that. And if we are, we should do it in love and truth and humility. And yet again, when we hear good works, if the Sermon of the Mount is to be our lens from which we apply it, which I think it should be, then we should mainly hear it as not Jesus' call for us to, to shine forth before others in big or uh, noticeable public things only. And instead, we church should really think of things like being a person who watches our anger or, or being someone who tries not to lust or being a Jesus follower in our view of divorce or being someone who doesn't lie. Or being someone who doesn't just tolerate, but genuinely loves from our heart our enemies. Or being someone who easily forgives others. 
Or being someone who checks the log in our own eye before we go and judge the speck in another's. Or being someone who does to others what we wish they'd do to us. And more. That's what we should think of when we hear good doings because those are all the things that Jesus goes on from here to talk about. Not to mention all the Beatitudes right about before this about being poor in spirit and pure in heart and merciful and a peacemaker and more. Living like that is shining forth our good doings. Which means, if you do boil that down, that shining forth our good works is similar, I think, to just being a faithful, genuine, day-to-day follower of Jesus wherever you are and whoever you're with. (laughs) Because the truth is, if, if we truly do that, people will see it. They will notice it. Our family, our friends, our co-workers will see that light. And, and also, I hope you know, the reality is, and it always has been the case for thousands of years, the reality is that individual, genuine Christians just following Jesus and influencing those they're around, that really is what changes the world as well. It really is. It's not usually huge public things. We just think that way because we're all surrounded with so much media. Instead, what changes the world is millions of followers of Jesus just day to day doing faithful good doings. All because they love Jesus. Which finally leads us to the third and last thing concerning how. And this is now just noticing how Jesus ends by bringing our Father in heaven into it. Our Father in heaven. And that's interesting because we might ask, why why talk about our heavenly Father here? Why, Why bring him into this talk of salt and light? And first, the answer is clearly because... He gets the glory for all of our good doings. You can see that. And so Jesus is saying here that in our following of him, we are to live in such a way where people somehow know that we are followers of Jesus. People know that we're living for God our Father's glory and not our own. Because if we don't somehow make that known in our good, good doings and how we live and speak to others, then people will glorify us for all the good doings we do while the goal is clearly for our Father in heaven to be glorified. And so that's the first reason Jesus brings up our Father here. But but digging maybe even deeper, what might this mention of our Father have to do with how you and I do good works? Well, what's interesting is that throughout Jesus' ministry, but especially in this Sermon on the Mount, I counted this week, and Jesus mentioned our Father 17 times in this Sermon on the Mount. 17 times. And most of the time, his point seems to be, you have a Father in heaven who loves you and is so for you. And so the goal is to live in a relationship with him and be like him. Just live in a relationship with your Father and be like him. And I think that fits here as well because that means in the final answer to how we're each to strive to live as the salt and the light that we are or an answer to what sort of good doings should I do, well, a final answer is that whatever you do, you need to do it knowing you have a Father in heaven who, in Christ who loves you and you should do it just trying to be like your Father, like God. Which means practically, if we're trying to think of how we can obey Jesus more, we should think of all of our good doings, church, as not just things we should do, nor just trying to do the right thing, but instead, apparently, more so, more so we should think of all of our good doings as just living according to the family that we're already a part of. Because <laughs> if we trust in Jesus, we are in God's family. God is our Father. Jesus is our Savior brother. And so living as salt and shining as light just means live according with that, to that. 
Realize you have a father in heaven who loves you and is so for you and therefore go and make it your aim to be like him. And when you do so, big or small, people will often see it and then he'll get the glory for all of our good doings. And so that's our passage, church. As those in Jesus' kingdom, we are salt. We are the light of the world. And how, though, are we to live like that? Well, number one, we're to live as salt and light in many good and beautiful doings that we just do in our lives, big or small. Number two, we're to strive to live as salt and light, especially by following Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And number three, we're to live as salt and light by trying to be like our Father in heaven, giving him all the glory. And so that's our passage. And so now, as we close, I just do really encourage all of us to not let this go and not make it personal, to make, this, make sure you make it personal. Because it all sounds well and good, right? To be salt and light. And yet remember, it's Jesus himself who in here took the time to warn us that we can genuinely be salt. And yet we can be salt that loses its taste. And we can truly be light. And yet we can take our light and basically place it under a basket. And so to be honest, we, we each here this morning, as we close, we need to analyze our lives, <laughs> And just make sure right now that that's not us in certain areas of our lives. And so for all of us who trust in Jesus, who are following Jesus here this morning to do this, I just encourage us now to ask ourselves some questions about our lives. Questions like, what are some ways that maybe I have been hiding my light? Or, or what are some ways that I know that I perhaps haven't been making things taste better around me? <laughs> Or, or what are some ways I just genuinely know I have not been obeying Jesus? Or finally, perhaps just consider some ways that during this message, maybe the Spirit inspired you and stirred you to go do more good. Because whatever or wherever the Spirit is personally leading you in your life, the goal still is for each of us to clearly consider these things from Jesus and then after this morning to make sure we go and live as the salt and the light that we are. Because the truth is, again, church, this is our king. He has saved us in the gospel in his life, death, and resurrection. He's made us his own. He's calling us to a grand purpose here. What we do does matter, and we do have a father in heaven who so loves us in Christ. And all that being true for us, let's daily and practically just now go and live differently. Meaning, let's live as the salt and light we are by letting our light shine before others so that they may see all of our good doings and give glory not to us, but to our Father who loves us in heaven. Amen? Let's pray.